Welcome to Mind Frames, the sometimes half-assed but always wholehearted film conversation. As always, I'm your host, Dave Canfield, and with me, as always, is... Michael Cockrell. What Mike... movie are we talking about today, Dave? Oh, it's going to be called... Da-da-da! Five, four, three, two, one. <laughs> Oppenheimer. Who's the director of Oppenheimer, Mike? This film is coming to us from Christopher Nolan. Uh, Oppenheimer is the story of J. Robert Oppenheimer, the brilliant scientist who led the Manhattan Project to develop the atomic bomb. The film explores Oppenheimer's complex character and his moral quandaries as he grapples with the implications of his work. We are a friend of Mr. Nolan, not in real life. He's way too fancy for us, and he doesn't have a phone anyway. How would we ever get a hold of him? But uh, he has quite an illustrious career, doesn't he? Yeah, his uh, his career is kind of second to none these days. He's definitely looked at as one of the you know leading directors um, uh, that's out there now and probably for the foreseeable future. Um, some people feel his track record is kind of uneven. Uh, I tend to be far more um, enthusiastic uh, and really love his work. Um, right now, I think it's kind of fashionable even to maybe kind of pick at him a little bit. But you have to remember, this is the guy who did the Dynamite remake of the film, um, Norwegian film Insomnia. Uh, they gave Robin Williams one of his great um, villainous roles that he was able to clock in a couple before his untimely passing. He also did The Prestige. Um, he's more, more famous, of course, for his Batman films, um, Batman Begins and uh, The Dark Knight um, Rises and The Dark Knight. Um, but uh, he also has Tenet. He has Inception, which many people feel is his masterpiece. So we're, you know, not dealing with somebody who um, is less than like an absolute major, major player. Intriguing. I was intriguing, intriguing it both in the films that you mentioned, don't mention in the order in which you put them. But I'm, I was like almost going to jump out of my chair when you didn't say Inception. You didn't mention Memento, which I think is kind of uh, more not, following. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you have to mention those, but Memento, in terms of like a structure of the plot, for that reason, you might mention it um, in ter- when discussing Oppenheimer as well. Um, in that they That's have nonlinear storytelling. Yes. But you know, now that I say that, so does Interstellar, doesn't it? Anyway, uh, in a certain to a certain degree, <laughs> plays with time. Um, plays yeah, plays with time. I'll stick there with that. Yeah. So one of the greats of today, I don't know who these people who don't like his work, but uh, a person who can deliver a, an entertaining film that really uh, plays with reality, plays with time distortion. I mean, we saw that ramped up to eleven and Tenet possibly to the detriment of the film. Um, but in, <laughs> Inception too, but Inception it worked uh, in terms of a nonlinear story, entering multiple universes. You're well, always I mean, like, you well, always got some crazy things appearing on screen. Well, and when the Memento um, uh, reference you made is so important because um, that really concentrates on Guy Pierce and his character. And I think this is the first film that we've seen from Nolan um, in a while that doesn't go back to special effects and spectacle, uh, but primarily focuses on a character to um, tell its story and, and that he's focusing his craft on. So uh, in, in a way, it's odd, but maybe it's a little bit of a back to, back to his roots. Yeah, it, 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 you know, I went in thinking this would be more like Dunkirk than it is, but it is a little bit like if... Uh, Memento and Dunkirk had a baby <laughs> a little bit like that with a, with a dash of inception, you know, with a little bit of, with the, but that was raised by inception perhaps. Uh, so very strong director. And I think he brought everything from his past work shows up here. Uh, he got a great cast and he got great performances out of all of them. And uh, we should also mention he is a co-writer of this. Uh, let's yeah. not forget that he, he adapted this for the screen with the help of the people who the this was based on. It's uh, based on a book called American Prometheus about uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer, a very popular book. It's been popular for a while, even more popular now, it's written I mean, I, by I think, K. Bird and Martin J. Sherwin. 
Yeah, and I th- think I had heard that what they spent twenty five years working on that book. That um, I do not know. That I'm not I'm not hundred percent sure. I think I believe I heard that. I want to know who's paying them if that's the case. I want twenty five you know, years to work on a book. I, could, I wish I could have twenty five years to, to, to write something. Unless you're uh, in a monastery coloring, designing a. Uh, uh, an illuminated manuscript. I think you usually are not given that long. <laughs> so like I said, I think uh, the the script here is tremendously good. And I think that a lot of that is because of Christopher Nolan. You know, the other people write nonfiction prose. So I, I'm not sure of their writing chops in terms of a, of, of a script. Um, but we've got some great scenes and some great dialogue. I really, the, the casting of this, was terrific, Dave. I, yeah. I wish I knew the casting director's name right now. I'm kind of embarrassed that I don't. But I think they picked some of the best people that perfectly fit in the roles. Um, and you know that I've been a fan of the lead. Oh, yeah. You ready to talk about the cast? Well, I, I, am. I am. You better I be. Am. I don't know what else you want to talk about. But Something unless you want anything me. else to say about Christopher Nolan? No, I, tell you, I think I think we kind of covered the bases. Uh, Killian Murphy, of course, is in the lead. Uh, fun fact about Christopher Nolan, though, he's British, but yes. his brother is American. No, I mean, I mean that's true. <laughs> no, 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 no. Very, yeah, Nolan himself has a very complicated history. Um, uh, I believe he he did some growing up in America. No, they're they're like half British, half American. So he has a British accent. His uh, brother has an American accent. It's not oh, like a mystery. No. You're not. No, he's not complicated like. Kevin Spacey's complicated. No, he's, (coughs) he's, um, yeah, as far as I know, he's a pretty, uh, straight laced. He, he really does not have a phone. Doesn't use technology. Wow. Interesting. Well, then I'm surprised you didn't know that Dave. That's pretty well known. He probably won't be creating a bomb unless it's a cinematic bomb. Um, so I think, uh, we can talk about the cast now. Um, of course, Killian Murphy in the lead is J. Robert Oppenheimer. Uh, he has worked with Nolan on the Batman films, uh, and of course Inception. He and Dunkirk. He is, you know, one of the outstanding actors of his generation. He's perfectly cast here. Uh, he goes through a lot uh, of physical transformation for this role, um, and uh, it's worth looking up Robert Downey Jr.'s um, praise of his preparation for the role of Murphy's preparation for the role. Um, but uh, I think this in, in a lot of ways is very well, maybe the, the film he's remembered for. Um, I, I, hmm. I, I, I will be, I will be interested to see what we both make of that statement. But um, also we have um, Emily Blunt, uh, the great Emily Blunt, um, one of uh, Britain's, uh, you know, most beloved actresses playing uh, Catherine Kitty Oppenheimer. Matt Damon plays the um, military attache who is in charge of uh, Los Alamos and and corralling all the scientists. Robert Downey Jr. plays a... uh, uh, um, Is he a congressman or a senator? He's a senator, right? I don't think he's anything. He's he's a person who... He's a political mover and shaker. Yes, who is... Has connections to Oppenheimer, which we will discuss in a little bit. Uh, Florence Pugh plays Jean Tatlock, um, an early ardent lover of uh, uh, of Oppenheimer. And uh, I also want to mention Macon Blair has a role in this film. Hi, Macon, if you're out there listening to us. Uh, Macon's directed movies like um, I uh, Don't Feel Like I Belong in This World Anymore. He was in Green Room. He was the star of Blue Ruins, a really respected actor, and he's great here um, as the sort of uh, defense lawyer during Oppenheimer's um, clearance, uh, security clearance uh, hearings. Uh, And also David Dashmalian, who's a Chicago actor, Chicago-based actor, uh, and a big friend of the Chicago Critics Film Festival. Um, And uh, it was a pleased to see them in there as well. Intriguing. Intriguing. So we're going to talk about uh, the cinematographer a little bit. I don't think we did the cast justice. You know, it's hard. <laughs> they're all perfect. They're perfectly cast, and they're all used perfectly. They're, they are. They are. There's no stunt casting in this movie. 
Uh, I don't know. I think everyone does great. Everything does great. I think, yeah, Killian Murphy, I mean, I think we have to say more about his performance here. I mean, normally this is the part where you would... I would like, no, no, I would go on and on. Vote on your phones. Should I tease Dave right now? I feel like I've been teasing (laughs) Dave too much. But normally this is the part where you would talk an hour about someone who like has a one line in the movie and they were like in horror movies from the seventies and everyone loves them. If we can talk about those people. (laughs) I have actually interviewed Killian Murphy. Good. Uh, What'd you think? uh, For the film 28 days later. Not always considered an easy person to interview. No. Um, And uh, not, not in the Joaquin Phoenix sense. He's just, I think here's the thing about Killian Murphy. He is, I, I hope this isn't what he's remembered for, but he is an extremely private person who does not want to move to America. I think that's what people need to understand is he comes to America and he stays in America and he does on these movies and apologies if I'm wrong now, but as of a few years ago, he liked living in London. He liked having a place in Ireland and he does not like living in LA. Um, so I think that's kind of limited some of his options and in, 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 in career. And, and like I said, his interview style reflects that when I say he's not easy, what I mean is he's private. He wants to stick to the points is much more. I mean, he's basically Irish, you know, <laughs> a lot of Irish people are, are, are like that, or it's more of a European way of interacting. He's very professional. I'm not saying he's right unprofessional, but you know, it's like he wants to talk about the movie. He wants to promote the movie, but he's not here to, you know, get you to like him. In the, in like the Robert movie. Downey Jr. Who is on all the time. Oh Charming God. AF. I wish I had yeah. 1% of his charm. But yeah. Killian Murphy, he's 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 there for business and he's very good at it. You know, the funny thing is when I interviewed him, he you could just tell it just wasn't his thing. And he was not going out of his way to give me a hard time or anything like that. But he is not interested in being famous. He's not interested in participating in sort of a cult of celebrity at all. He is a an actor, I think, in the in the sense that that is what he wants to do, um, far more than be known for acting. He just wants to act, and uh, you know when you have that level, I've encountered that before. I encountered that with Willem Dafoe, again, super nice guy, um, but he'd rather be on a stage somewhere, rehearsing lines and blocking out scenes. He just is that. That's his gig. Um, you know, no, nevertheless, is... nevertheless, he is he's having a great uh, career. Um, oh man, he's on fire! I, I wish, yeah, I love him as a lead. Love him, Peaky Blinders. Um, you know, when he would work with Nolan in in the dark in the Batman movies when he played Scarecrow, I thought they were great together, and I thought that was one of my one of my favorite villains from that series. Um, and I, he's been in so many Nolan movies now. You know, he has this great part in Dunkirk. Um, but I think if you really want to see him perform, there are two movies you want, you got to see Oppenheimer <laughs> and, uh, the wind that shakes the barley. And that was way back in 2006. Oh, yeah. And he's one of the leads in that film and he does amazing. I think he was nominated or won a BAFTA for that. Um, I, I, I just, I hope that, that he can get, I, I hope, I hope this isn't his, what he's known for, because I think he has a lot more to give, but if he is known for this, if he doesn't do a performance like this again, uh, I think you could call it a day very successfully, but I think he has much, much more to contribute. And I would love to see three or four more performances of this level of complexity and style uh, in his future. I, I, I think that this could, he was already an A-lister probably, but I hope he's going to move up to the upper echelons where he belongs. He belongs with well, William Defoe. He belongs getting, with Joaquin. He's getting nominated for an Academy Award for this. There, I don't think there's any question of that. I, I Scoo- scoot up towards your mic too, by a little. Sorry, he, he's getting nominated for an Academy Award. Oh, absolutely. That's any question. And I was racking my brain, Dave. But I, I agree. Yeah. But I wanted to. But I wanted to say, you know, the, the the thing about his partnership with Nolan that complicates his career a little bit at this point is he's kind of, you know, gone up and up and up in terms of the amount of face time that he has in the Nolan project, and now. Um, he's the lead and he's in virtually every scene of the movie. Um, I don't know if Nolan is going to, you know, want to identify himself that closely with one actor, if he considers Killian his muse. And more importantly, even if he does, let's face it, you know, there are very few people other than Christopher Nolan at this point writing at this level. 
Um, this is essentially, in many ways, a biopic. And biopics are kind of, you know, standard affairs. They take you through the life of a character. This movie is very different, and it plays not only with the timeline, but it's, it's, it's very, very well written. The dialogue is great. And I think that you don't just come across scripts like that every day. So, you know, all the stars have been aligned for him uh, and, and Nolan as they've worked together. And it'll just be interesting to see where it, where it goes. I'm with you, man. I think he's got a lot more to give. I don't think he has to stick with Christopher Nolan. I think he could very successfully be with other directors. Of course, he has Peaky Blinder movie coming out right. from Netflix that He's I think is going to go to theaters. Got to get that um, good script. I think if he did it with The Wind That Shakes the Barley, if The Wind That Shakes the Barley was an American movie and it came out today, he would be he would have been nominated for a uh, for a, an yeah. award. But I was really racking my brain, Dave, at why the casting of this was so perfect. And I'm, I'm going to like try to not predict like where he's going to go in his career, even though like that's so tempting, but sticking with this film, uh, why was he so perfect for this movie? And I was thinking about it and I couldn't figure it out because I could see other people playing Oppenheimer. I was like, obviously there are some people who could play Oppenheimer. Sure. But I was like, why is he so perfect? And I watched interviews of him and I watched Oppenheimer twice and I watched interviews of Dr. Oppenheimer in real life. And I came to the conclusion, not only did he lose weight and he really did physically resemble Oppenheimer, great makeup and hairstyling, by the way, they got Oppenheimer's hair perfect. Um, and they turned that, um, they turned uh, Killian Murphy, they somehow got him a little bit of a, Oppenheimer had a little bit of a frizzy fro. They somehow got that look and that's that's pretty good. Well, hair and makeup was on, on point as you would expect from someone like Nolan to get the best people. But anyway, what was it that made him so perfect? And I came to the conclusion that both J. Robert Oppenheimer and Killian Murphy have distinctive eyes and expressive eyes. And um, definitely if you watch Peaky Blinders, you will not miss that. Killian Murphy has extremely expressive eyes, and that's something I love in an actor that uses their eyes to express things. I mean, all good actors do. Some great actors do an amazing job, including Mr. Murphy. But I think that's why he was perfect. Oppenheimer's eyes dominated his face and you could see pain, you could see joy and you could see regret or pride in the real Robert Oppenheimer. That was his essence. You could see his essence coming through the eyes um, of a somewhat unexpressive uh, face. You know, he was a man of the early 20th century, a man of wealth and privilege. He didn't express himself a lot, but his eyes said a lot. And I think Killian Murphy He's got that famous, you know, resting face where he's like never smiling. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think Killian Murphy knows that. And I think that's why he was perfect for this role. Well, when people talk about the arrogance of of scientists in general in this movie, um, they joke about that some. Um, And it's a joke because it's true. (laughs) I mean, yeah. In the movie, in the movie, Killian Murphy's character says, uh, "I'm just a humble physicist," and Matt Damon says, "Well, I'll let you know if I ever meet one." If I ever meet one, (laughs) and um, and it is funny because you know these are these are people who at the time were exploring quantum physics, and quantum reality was unthinkable to most people, and they were literally had their head in the clouds as far as how they saw the world and they saw it from a vantage point and through a filter that very, very few people could understand at the time. Uh, and that made it hard for them, uh, I think to, to go back and forth between that space and real life. And, uh, which is, you know, hard at the best of times for people who are, uh, probably more in the academic sphere. Um, and I'm uh, definitely speaking from uh, experience uh, in college. It's, uh, it's, it's interesting to, to see how some people will use phrases like arrogant and prideful. Um, I think, to be honest, a lot of it is just, is just not present in the room with you. Um, they are off in their taking their own their own journey, having their own conversation with uh, with the with the with the universe and um, and their theories about how it runs. So, 
they capture that perfectly here um, in a number of ways through a lot of different techniques that support Killian Murphy's performance, but um, Killian Murphy's performance is beat for beat. It just is there. I think the other standout of the film, very strong cast, one of the strongest casts you're ever going to assemble. But I think the other standout in the film is um, Robert Downey Jr. I think we can say that the Iron Man suit has been put into the closet. It's, it's, <laughs> he's moved past it, though he does like to talk about it a lot. It's really a big part of his life. Even in the interviews for Oppenheimer, you'll see him mentioning it a lot. And uh, so it's like, he has no regrets. And I really admire that a lot that he's like, you know, a lot of the people they check out, like, I forget his name, but the, um, some actors, like the guy who played Hawkeye, he was like, I cash my check and I move out, I move along. It's like, he Robert Downey Jr. is owning it. And I really love that. Uh, he's, he's well, he's a lot of fun. He's a fun guy. Anyway. Um, a lot of people. I, I, I loved his performance here. A lot of people saying, this you know, best. I'd have to think more about that. But in terms of a, a, a character that's kind of matching Oppenheimer, you know, go being, we'll talk about like how they contrast, but I think he's a person like he can, he can go up against Killian Murphy and hold his own. That's pretty impressive. Even though we don't get a lot of scenes with them in the same room, we have, a, we have a couple scenes with them in the same room, including important scenes. But when, when I think when Robert Downey Jr. is doing his best work in the black and white sequences where he's in the room cut doing his political machinations for the, for his commerce seat, commerce secretary appointment, um, he's doing amazing, and uh, you almost—he's—he's he's not a likable character. He's maybe a little less complicated than Oppenheimer. He's still complicated, but he's so forceful. You almost want to like him, and that's the sign of a of a great performance. And yeah. when you listen to um, Robert Downey Jr. talk about this character, you can totally tell that Robert Downey Jr. liked him. He always brings up the positive attributes of Lew- of, of uh, Louis Strauss even though he's not a very positively portrayed person here. So you can tell where that, um, where that love is coming from. I'm not saying he loved him, but uh, he, he was working on the sympathetic side of Louis Strauss, which is exactly what that character needed was not given a lot of sympathy from the script. And I think all of that sympathy and the respect you feel for him. We're in the non-spoiler section, so I won't reveal how his character ends up, but there are points where this very prideful man is tested and you're going to think like they must have broke him and he puts his hat on and faces the facts. Uh, so it's like, you want to like that character, even though uh, you don't want him to succeed. So yes. excellent, excellent performance. Yeah. And you know, again, you know, people are saying very probably an Academy award nomination uh, uh, for Downey jr. In fact, I, I would be kind of surprised if he doesn't win. Um, I know that's a bold statement, but, I think the buzz I'm hearing about his performance in this film is just, it's that next level uh, kind of buzz. People are just really singling him out. And he's a person who uses his whole face. Like we talked about Killian Murphy to his benefit, to the character's benefit. Downey using expressive eyes. He's a whole body performance. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing to watch, you know, he'll just move an eyebrow a little bit or, you know, a downturn of a lip or, you know, and it's always to a purpose. It's always within the actual life of a character. Um, and here's the thing, you know, we're, we're spending all this time talking uh, very rightly about Murphy and about Downey Jr. The rest of the cast in this movie is n- nothing less than great. They are uh, not only well cast, but, um, you know, they are, they are, they create flesh and blood characters. Uh, and this is a movie with a big cast. There are a lot of people in it. You'll recognize a lot of different folks. I mean, the guy who played Dexter's dad on the show Dexter is in it. Um, there are other actors you'll recognize from TV, you know, people that we haven't named. Um, so some high profile faces in terms of, you know, being recognizable, but I think disappearing really well under the roles in which they've, uh, they've, they've, um, you know, they've uh, um, uh, adopted here. We also, we got to say this. Emily Blunt is so good as uh, Catherine Kitty Oppenheimer. 
Um, again, I think an Academy Award nomination is probably going to happen there. She is fierce. She's determined. She's broken. She's uh, she's she's just man. Somebody I want next to me in a bar fight. I'll tell you that. Uh, she's just she's just got a inner strength that she exudes through this character um, that, again, like all the characters in this movie, is, is flawed. Uh, and I think that you'll... Uh, uh, I think that you'll agree with me, Mike, when I say that. I think she is excellently cast and does a great job. It's hard to stand out in a cast like this. Um, but, you know, I, I think... I think she's excellently cast, and she's got a great part here. All right. Well, I guess are we moving on to our cinematographer at this point? I think we do need to talk about cinematography. And it's someone that we've talked about before, uh, Hoyta van Hoytema. And uh, no no surprise that we would have talked about them before because they've done some of my favorite movies. Uh, The last time we talked about them Dave is when we covered Nope. And I think that there's a, you know, Christopher Nolan has worked with Hoytema before in Dunkirk and Interstellar. Um, I think that's it. I have to think about that. But uh, I think that what's what the thing about, I forgot he did Nope, even though we talked extensively about how much I love Nope's right. cinematography there. There are some similarities in that, that we see in this film. They take place in the desert. They use wide open spaces. They zoom out a lot of time, especially when there's an alien or a big bomb going off. Uh, so anytime you're doing a Christopher Nolan film, you know, not only does he not have a phone, he also doesn't like to use CGI and special effects, or at least ones that you can see, <laughs> ones that are up front. Uh, you're never going to see a giant lizard. <coughs> you're going to probably see a real lizard zoomed in. And that's exactly how they made the bomb, as far as I'm concerned, too. I mean, they zoomed in on a bunch of little things. They did one big one, put up a lot of elements or little ones on it together, and it works perfectly. This is a great example of uh, cinematography, and they've worked together well before. I think you're out in the desert. You're with someone who loves the desert. You're seeing something beautiful and spectacular. I think you need that person like Hoytema that knows how to use the natural light, the, 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 the sun coming in on a wide open space, setting an atmospheric scene just kind of like we saw in 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 nope too it's like you're in this little isolated valley where something magical is happening something horrible is happening in both cases and uh dunkirk was very much the same way looking out over the sea big open space big wide shots of the beach lots of people on the beach just big zoomed out big well, when you're, when you're blockbuster shooting, <laughs> when you're shooting in 70 millimeter um you know you don't get that opportunity every day so it's uh, really great. Shooting when, in IMAX as well. And yeah, Hoyt of yeah, Hoytema, yeah, yeah. He, he, he carries that camera. He will put oh, the camera yeah. on himself and do it. So, yeah. yeah. And when you think of, and when you think of, you know, some of the movies he's worked on, like Let the Right One In, which is, you know, a fantastic movie. And uh, also very different intimate. cinematography, not a big it, open space. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's more intimate. Um the Fighter, which is all about close quarters and boxing. Um, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which is a kind of an intimate kind of movie. Um, but then he begins... Yeah, you're, you're, you're bringing a good point. You know, The Fighter, Tinker Tailor Soldier, Soldier Spy, Let the Right One In, great movies. Boy, he's got great choices, too, of who to yeah. work with. But a lot of those are interior scenes, a lot of interior scenes, interior rooms. Yeah. I just described him as a person known for big outdoor spaces, and, and he I, there's a thread line of natural light but uh yeah so he's able to do a lot and he's kind of been switching hasn't he yeah he has and i mean you know he's you know her interstellar dunkirk tenant um those are all movies that that bear his stamp and they're all movies that benefit so greatly from his versatility um but i really get the feeling like with him even though he has that command of landscape and of and of geography um and 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 the reach of that lens uh it's rooted in the characters it's rooted in expressing things that have to do with where the characters not just where the characters are outwardly but often what's going on internally within the space of the narrative or within the film and uh or in the characters and i and i I just think it's really 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 cool 
Yeah, um, one of the greats working today. Yeah. You know, we also wanted to give a shout out to the editor Jennifer Lane because uh why I think uh this she's movie not. is She's not lame. She's just amazing. No, she's she's not. That would be ableist to even do that to call her that. But um, why why do I think editing is so tough in this movie? I think um, one, it's Christopher Nolan, <laughs> and two, we have an all star cast here. So on our last film that we talked about, we talked about Mission Impossible, where there was also an all star cast. Lots of big a big cast in that movie is where as well, and they solved that problem by having one of the characters say. I just go got to go out of the movie for a little bit. There was none of those shortcuts taken here. They kept every character, you know, you only see Rami Malek a few times, but <clears throat> they made sure that those scenes were edited to be just in the right length, just the right place to let you know that Rami Malek might be important, especially at the end. Um, and, ter- and, and, you know, it's just a long, complicated movie with an all-star cast, a complicated cast, in, you know, in the fact that you could with the help of your director, knit it all together and create something so succinct to where I can remember scenes. I can't, I can remember every scene and the transitions were great. The transitions were so uh, consistent. I can't think of a, like, you know, whenever I'm watching a movie, I've always had the thought, like, could they have taken this scene out? And despite the fact that this movie is a very quick three hours, it goes by fast, but it is three hours. I can't think of a scene that I, would want to take out of this movie. Not that I know anything about what I'm talking about at all anyway, but I, I, there's never a scene you're watching and you're thinking this should be shorter. This should be out. Great editing. Yeah. I mean, we've seen a lot of long movies uh, just this summer. And uh, I think with all of them, we thought they could have been trimmed. This, this is not that case. This is a movie that justifies its, its runtime um, by just doing what a movie is supposed to do, which is keep you very involved. And you're not thinking about anything else. And I, I've, we, we each saw, we should mention, we each saw this movie twice. And both times it was in 70 millimeter. Um, and uh, for me, um, and, and I got to tell you, I just was, I was absolutely fine with it not being, uh, um, you know, uh, any, any shorter. It, 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 I, I too can't remember where I cut it. So Dave, we didn't get Christopher Nolan paired up with our friend Hans this time. We had a new um, director of music, composer, Ludwig Gorenson. What do you think of the music and the score in Oppenheimer? Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, yeah, it's not Hans Zimmer. Uh, When I think of Hans Zimmer and Christopher Nolan, I automatically think of The Dark Knight and how innovative uh, various parts of that score seem um, and how lush and... uh, evocative the the rest of the score scene and um I, we get the same thing here so uh, it's it's just uh, it's experimental it um is um very evocative um and christopher nolan very wisely chooses uh when and where it gets used um the use of music in this film is almost as complex in some ways i think as the use of camera uh, and I really, really loved this score. I, again, not to beat a dead horse, um, I smell an award uh, nomination coming up here. Yeah, very interesting um, score. I liked it a lot. I saw a little, sh- there's a little short on YouTube about the making of the score and how they did it. I also wanted to talk about the sound design a little bit. You know, we have Richard King uh, doing the sound design here, a British, British um, artist. Uh, and... I thought this was a particularly good sound design. You have a lot of use of silence, silence in, in scenes where you might have expected a loud explosion, silence in scenes where characters are going through an emotional or revelatory moment. And I think that works great. I always love interesting choices like this. It's no surprise. You know, this is the person that worked with uh, Mr. Nolan on Interstellar, Inception, Dunkirk, you know, and I think you can gradually see both of them moving towards more times of quiet. You know, Dunkirk, if I'm not mistaken, has those scenes of near silence in the when the aircraft is out of um, out of fuel and like spinning. Yeah. And many many of those many of the scenes in uh, Oppenheimer were, I think, re- reminiscent of that. But I think they really did it well here. They they used that silence perfectly. And also, there's like an eerie undertone 
uh, eerie undersounds, you know, what, what am I talking about? Like, oh, I don't want to cite any specifics, but there are places where sounds appear and they mark, we can talk more about this in the spoiler section, but there are places where a sound appears and it marks a departure in the tone of the scene, which is also marking a departure in the perhaps, perhaps quote, moral qualms, end quote, of Dr. Oppenheimer. We could talk more about that later, but that would be a spoiler to, to reveal the scene at which that happens. But that's, yeah, great sound design, great use of sound and music. Yeah, I think that I think what you were saying about the sound design, um, which we'll definitely get into more in the spoiler section, is the thing that's interesting about it is typically when somebody is writing a score, for instance, and they come up with a romantic theme, that romantic theme is um, is there sometimes to take the place of dialogue. It's it's sort of there to tell you how to feel, and when that's done subtly. Um, it works great, and when it's you know like a sledgehammer, it uh, it can come off pretty corny and cheesy. There's some very imaginative things done with sound in this film, and um, it's definitely one of my one of my favorite films this year for for that. And uh, we'll get into it more. You know, the other this week I also watched Tar, and there's a similar usage of a similar sound yes. in Tar. Yes. Um, yeah, anyway, uh love that movie as well. But I just thought, like, there's a scene in Tar where they use a sound, a similar sound in a similar way. Uh, you know what I watched on YouTube today, Dave? Just uh, just have a little side here. What? Killian Murphy's screen test as Batman for Batman Begins. Which is how which him I, and Nolan started working together. <laughs> which I highly, highly recommend. I don't know if Killian Murphy could have played Batman. I think he probably could have with with a little uh, personal training. I haven't seen uh, and, it. And it was a younger Killian Murphy too. Uh, but he definitely could have fucking played Bruce Wayne. I'll tell you that much. Um, okay. So I recommend that. A little recommendation. So are we ready <laughs> to give some reviews of Oppenheimer? I am. Well, you want to go first or do you want me to? Yeah, you go first, Dave. I thought that Oppenheimer is such a stellar example of the biopic. I think it pushes the idea of the biopic forward, even as it sort of clings to a classic biopic, um, you know, idea, which is we're going to follow the singular character. The movie's going to be about them. And um, there are a lot of ways to do that. And some movies, like there was a movie recently called Tesla, with uh, our favorite Ethan Hawke in the title role that was wildly experimental and um, uh, had all sorts of anachronistic stuff in it to sort of try to tell Tesla's story. Um, this is a movie that in its own way um, is, is somewhat experimental in the way that it approaches all the different ways that different parts of filmmaking can help tell that story of Oppenheimer's life, his inner life, his emotional life. And I think a very curious transference happens because of that. Oppenheimer becomes, for me, um, the 1940s and 50s with all of its um, struggle to be politically defined and to work uh, towards, um, you know, peace in the world. Um, to embody the best of what it meant at that time to be an American. And uh, it's, it's, it, it's very, very evocative. Um, it does both equally well. I felt introduced to Oppenheimer as a person. He's very complex in this film. Um, and yet I also felt deeply Oppenheimer as a you know, person who is like we all ultimately are trapped in his time and writing out the, 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 the history around him that is so much larger than he is and uh, trying not to drown in the process. Uh, really, really, really great film and definitely putting it in uh, my shortlist for best of the year. Yeah, it is an extremely strong film. 
Uh, I don't know if we still do star ratings, but I would give it uh, four stars. And you know, I usually don't give five stars on the first viewing, but I could see this getting bumped up to five stars. Um, you know, I'm, I like to pick things apart. Will not surprise anyone here. And I, the more complicated a character, the more complicated a film, the more I love to pick it apart. Now, sometimes that gets frustrating. Like Bo is afraid, you know, on this podcast. We, you, that that just gets frustratingly, and that's and, and I like that too. That you can't understand it, but I think this being more grounded, closer, is like a recipe for success. The character is extremely complicated. He is a person. We have complicated feelings about nuclear weapons. We have complicated feelings about being involved with the government, about patriotism. And Robert Oppenheimer, I don't know if he's symbolic of the 1940s for me, but he is a character and a great vehicle through which we can explore those feelings and work through them ourselves. And the fact that Killian Murphy so expressively highlights all those corners of the room, you know, you have the corner of patriotism, the corner of intellectual curiosity, the corner of pragmatism, the corner of idealism. Oppenheimer had all of these qualities, and many of those are contradictory, and we follow him through his life as he wrestles with those. Um, I think that that is the strongest part of the film for me. It's very hard to think of areas of the film that are weak. Uh, I think the usage of the parallel storyline, or it's like a different timeline storyline, it's not parallel, but uh, the alternate timeline story with Robert Downey Jr.'s character, Louis Strauss, is a great vehicle to like, you know, you see Oppenheimer through his eyes, but then you also get a more subjective view. So you're getting like both sides of the truth. You're getting the, the emotional truth and then you're getting the perspective dirty truth, which I'm not sure Lewis Strauss is exactly the perspective dirty truth, but he's a version of it. That's not Oppenheimer at least. So I think these elements, the incredible performance, the great complexity in the character uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s parallel man, parallel story, I think enable a viewer to like have an enjoyable experience, but also work through the complexities that come with life and especially nuclear weapons and complicated people. Uh, so it's extremely successful in all of that. It's the only parts of the film that, the only parts of the, uh, you know, this is such, so, so pet, uh, you know, there's some of it that feels a little corny. Uh, especially the Einstein part. Like, do do we really need Einstein in there? Uh, you know, I, I'm sure it's based on true life, but I, I did chuckle a little when Einstein just like emerged from nowhere at one scene to to have like a chat with Robert Oppenheimer. So there were, there were some points where I could feel like, oh, you're trying to get your hooks into me, Christopher, where it's like, oh, Einstein's here to say Oppenheimer's smart. Or, oh, okay, JFK has a mention in this film, which we won't talk about yet. So I'm like, oh, you're trying to get your little historical good guy hooks into me. But, but with setting that tiny, tiny quirks aside, it's a incredibly strong film. Uh, and I mean, if if there aren't awards for this film, especially with regard to its lead, uh, I'd be surprised. But it's pretty early to start guessing what the best films of the year are. But this is clearly gunning for some awards. Well, I guess we're going to be moving on into our spoiler conversation all right let's do it yeah spoilers yeah um okay biggest spoiler let's get it out of the way the bomb worked (laughs) (laughs) then the movie is not about that's the other that's the other thing the movie worked. um oh man that was too easy (laughs) will open up your bomb come on people if you've got that in your article, you need to seriously rethink your career choices or hobby choices in our in my my part. Um, so what can we say? I mean, we kind of spread our technical love, you know, love for our technical parts. Uh, you know, well, we we did say early on we don't we're, we're way more interested in Oppenheimer the person than in the you know um, than 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 in having some debate about the the use of uh the use of nuclear weapons um you know just this week of course we had that brought up again yet again by uh, medvedev uh that if uh, ukraine gets uh, too froggy with their new little program of you know trying to reclaim some of their land that uh, they might have to use tactical nukes um but i will say that this movie does an amazing job of 
of simply laying those questions out there through Oppenheimer's life, through the choice yeah. made through all that. Yeah, we usually do one. We usually do one one movie, one theme. We try to, especially a complicated movie. Sometimes we have two, rarely three. And we definitely could do the theme of nuclear weapons, and that is a huge theme in the film, and I don't deny it. But for me, you know, I'm really interested in what makes this movie great. And I, I didn't necessarily learn anything about, like it didn't change my mind on nuclear weapons, or I didn't really learn too much about nuclear weapons. Right. To me, what is is really unique about this film, and the thing that I just want to talk about, is the character of Oppenheimer. I know you floated the idea of like Oppenheimer is like the symbol of the 1940s. Are you okay to uh, just uh, talk about Oppenheimer as a complicated character and maybe contrast him a little bit with with uh, Mr. Strauss? Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up because I, I think that for me, you know, today tonight as we record, I'm sort of struggling with my words. Um, I think I said it, I said it up here. I wrote Oppenheimer as a person as a powerful metaphor. His moral uncertainties, political ambiguities, and sense of helplessness in the face of the forces his work unleashed mirror precisely the questions that continue to demand central attention in the nuclear age. And that is that complexity um, keeps him from being, you know a good guy it keeps him from being a bad guy he's a human being and it's really chilling to me I've, I've heard people say that they did not find parts of this film chilling i absolutely found parts of this chilling i found it absolutely chilling to have all the sounds stripped out of the bomb sequence i found it absolutely chilling the 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 flood of noise that Oppenheimer dealt with as he was trying to make his speech at one point in the film um and i find it absolutely chilling at the end that someone so utterly brilliant at the end of the day was left with all of that doubt and fear about what he'd done um And I think that in and of itself, it doesn't answer the questions that the film raises because we're still dealing with all those questions, right? But uh, the, about about our nuclear arsenal and everything. But it does remind us, don't ever, ever forget the smartest people in the world do questionable things, uh, make bad choices, um, are fallible. And, and um, this is something that's too big to be left, perhaps, in the hands of one man or even one small group of people. Well, with that, let's close our discussion on nuclear weapons. Um, yeah, I think I'll just quote, uh, you know, there's a great scene from um, Star Trek The Next Generation where... Uh, Captain Picard says, uh, you know, um, you put us on trials for the crimes of humanity. Captain Picard says to Q, John Delancey's Q. And uh, John Delancey's Q, of course, says the jury's still out on that, Picard. Make no mistake. And I will say that the jury's still out on um, humanity, on nuclear weapons in particular. That could definitely be one thing that determines... uh, how how much we deserve to exist in this world it's in the i'd say it's in the top five but j robert oppenheimer he was also complicated he was the father of the atomic bomb and i think the first like i think we need to talk about how he's portrayed in the film whether we think that what we see is accurate whether we have a reliable narrator we don't have a narrator but you know what i mean whether we have a reliable narrator and where we land on him, because and the reason I want to start with this is because I've read numerous, uh, you know, articles, reviews and discussions, watched YouTube videos, and everyone has a highly sympathetic view of Oppenheimer. And I think the movie intends for you to have a highly sympathetic view from Oppenheimer. But I think that it's interesting before we start talking about Dr. Oppenheimer's flaws that we examine um, 
we play devil's advocate with that. So in the film, Dr. Oppenheimer, J. Robert Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer, is on is on a somewhat of a trial to get his, his Q clearance, right? His security clearance. And um, he's accused of basically making bad judgments, that he has flawed judgment. And some of those judgments, well, he's accused of being a leftist sympathizer. He's accused of having bad judgments. Um, but I think the most serious accusation is that he has poor judgment. That is the conclusion that the uh, inquiry ultimately comes to. And that is was the opinion of Teller, who is the closest thing we have to a villain in this film. And I think that it's, it's useful to play at devil's advocate and ask yourself, was Robert Oppenheimer truly, did he have bad judgment? Was he flawed? Uh, I mean, we know he was flawed, but was he actually a security risk? And did he have uh, egotistical reasons for his come to Jesus moment with regard to nuclear weapons? Uh, for instance, they point out during his Q hearing, which is completely staged in the kangaroo court, make no mistake about it, that Dr. Oppenheimer's qualms, moral qualms, didn't develop until 19... They, he was fine with it in 1945, but then in 1947, he was opposed to the creation of a hydrogen bomb, didn't recommend it when he was on the, the commission, uh, for reasons that were unclear. And Teller says, I was confused by them. I wish he was in better hands. And um, I think you have to ask yourself... Better hands, yeah. I think you have to ask yourself before you fall too in love with Robert Oppenheimer, the apologist, Robert Oppenheimer, the uh, person who wants to be forgiven, ask yourself, why did those qualms develop? Now, I think the logical place, and I think where the movie points you, is because he saw the horror of the nuclear explosion, and he realized what it would mean for that atomic bomb. But as we, as we wrestle with the complexity of this character, I think what we need to keep in the back of our minds is that there might be another side to that argument. And I think it's very interesting though. We, and I think that's kind of the genius of having um, the black and white time frame, the black and yeah. white story. Yeah. Uh, yeah because yeah. if you just had Oppenheimer's point of view, which is basically the parts that are in color, you would come out with um, with a conclusion very very clearly, but putting in Louis Strauss's timeline, his storyline, you get to see an alternate version, and uh, I think that's a very interesting choice, and I think it's something that worked well. And I know I'm I'm rambling here, but I think it works well because I ultimately do come out down on the side myself, and I think it's a personal personal choice, though I haven't actually heard of anyone who. Uh, sides with the idea that Robert Oppenheimer is just an egotistical person who wanted to have his cake and eat it too, which I think is a valid interpretation, by the way, of the events. But I haven't, I myself don't come down on that side, and I haven't heard anyone who has. Um, I, I, I think it's very interesting. I think it makes the case for Dr. Oppenheimer as a character who is truly repentant because you have the other side, because the other side was presented the side that Oppenheimer is a bad guy pre presented through the Lewis Strauss storyline strengthens the relatively weak case that Dr. Oppenheimer is a repentant and, um, you know, sympathetic character end well, of rant. Well, okay. In the, in the, in the beginning of mine, um, I would say, um, Teller, uh, is definitely not the closest thing that the film has to a villain. Uh, oh yeah, there's one other guy. <laughs> yeah, Louis Strauss, who's a vile, um, po po political, Machiavellian, worst kind of example of what of how government runs, uh, and how privileged people worm their way through a system. Um, that they really have no business being part of uh, um, because their motives are so, so gross and so self-serving um, and they become so self-righteous. Um, now the movie does give us a, a, a self-righteous view of these scientists as well. 
Um, and Teller is among them, for sure. Um, and Teller never does lose that. But Teller's comment um, that he didn't understand Oppenheimer, uh, Oppenheimer's decisions all the time, I think is really important because that's a fair observation for him to make. Um, the kindest thing that I'd probably say about Louis Strauss is he did have a disagreement with Oppenheimer about whether or not the the, the H-bomb needed to be the new focus of American um, military, you know, um, you know, ongoing development versus trying to level the playing field and, you know, Oppenheimer suggesting that we get all the Soviets and we start arms negotiations and this kind of thing. Um, too little too late for Oppenheimer at that point, kind of naive to think that the United States government was going to do that. Um, also naive maybe to believe that that no one would understand the bomb until they used it. I think that's something we hear over and over and over again in the in the in the film. And again, it's it's a shockingly naive thing. It's the kind of thing you expect an absent-minded professor to believe about the way the world works. Um, now, having said those things, um, I would probably. I would probably have a more, a generally more sympathetic view of Oppenheimer. But to me, it's not, it's not a question of was Oppenheimer a bad man? I think he was a weak man. Um, I think he was a weak man in a world that was often very confusing for him. Um, and he didn't understand things about people. He didn't understand things about, um, love uh, about um, the kinds of relationships that he could have with, with, with uh, for instance, the women in his life. And those left him in very vulnerable positions. Um, and one the other thing we haven't talked about is the military in the movie. Um, because Oppenheimer... In a way, we want to root for him because the military is sort of the representative of brute use of force, of uh, being not very intellectually friendly, of being willing to sacrifice intellect for for short-sighted goals, um, and not being entirely trustworthy with its own sort of like power that it already holds. It's um, very, very interesting to me that Oppenheimer, as we see in the film, ends up being devoured by all these forces in a very real way. I mean, we're left with a picture of Oppenheimer as a pretty frail, um, used-up person who's been through more than is healthy for a person to, to go through. And um, I I think the film, you know, there's a certain inevitability that's attached to that, given his own contradictions, given his own naivete. Well, let's, let's go through some possible flaws of Dr. Hoffman. Let's explore this character. I would, you know, I propose we go through a list of flaws. We talk about flaws. And then I would love to talk about, uh, you know, you all know how I love a flawed (laughs) character who overcomes his flaws. I would like to talk to, I would like to talk about and make the case that Dr. Oppenheimer overcomes his flaws. Uh, And then I'd also like to talk about how he contrasts with Louis Strauss too, all these characteristics, because I think they share a lot of flaws and we can see if we think Louis Strauss also overcomes them. Uh, but first, I think you nailed, you know, one that wasn't on my original list, which is naivete. Um, Oppenheimer is relatively naive. Isn't it somewhat ironic that he believes in the film that the bomb will have to be s- used and seen to um, be 
believed because he is a theoretical physicist. He has written papers about holes in space, which we call black holes now, that won't be seen or proven for decades, decades after his death. Uh, So isn't it strange that this person whose entire life is around theory wants to have the physical proof? I think that's very interesting. Um, And I think that's a testament to how naive he is. And, you know, when you're when you're deciding, is Dr. Oppenheimer a person who only had moral qualms after he got all the glory, which is basically the big question I asked in the beginning? I think that's something to consider. I think that a lot of his reasons why you might not think that would be he does seem to be quite naive, naive in terms of his relationships, naive in terms of of the way he um, approaches things. Like, for instance, Dave, I think let's talk about relationships, political affiliations, research. Um, You know, he starts a relationship with a woman who is somewhat unstable. She's a member of the Communist Party. She's younger. Uh, She's a student and he's a professor. Not she's not a student of his. But, you know, she's she's in a much different um, place in life. I'm talking about Jean here, of course, played by Florence Pugh. And. There, I think he had a naivete and a flirtation with that kind of thing that was not really beneficial to his characteristics. All of his political flirtations were not beneficial to his to his life. So, like, immediately it seems like their relationship, I'm sure they had good times and had fun and they, they really were fit in many, many ways, but it wasn't a relationship that was working out. Ultimately, he went with someone else. With well, the film, yeah, the yeah. film definitely paints it as a very problematic relationship, and paints Gene uh, uh, um, uh, uh, Tatlow. Um, am I pronouncing Tatlick, Tatlow, something like that? Yeah, yeah. Pronounce, you know, paints her as um, as a character who's sort of in crisis, even when he meets her. She, she has this one grasp on 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 things and that is the party the the forward momentum that people are hoping for in that and um I think some of that's really going to resonate with people watching this movie now because we are starting to have those conversations again in, in America and uh you know are we going to have another Joe McCarthy come along in a few years to beat people up? Uh, and get people fired and everything else horrible that happened during the Red Scare. Uh, I mean, you have FBI agents following these people around, taking down their license plate numbers. There's some terrifying shit going down in reference. And Oppenheimer seemed to not understand. In fact, he did not understand because we know that um, other characters tell him, what are you doing? You want to be a part of something? You you want to be a part of the thing we're building? You can't be because you have all of these leftist affiliations. And I think it's a, it's a, a related but a similar similar flaw that Dr. Oppenheimer has was he was a person who did kind of like to have his cake and eat it too. Not to the extent to where I think it's a flaw he doesn't overcome, but he liked to have a intellectual fascination with... Um, communism, leftist ideologies, but he never committed. He never joined the party. He always just experimented with it. Uh, he, you know, he's a person of varied interests, but he never uh, committed to it. And this is outside the film, but I, I watched another um, expert, you know, another physicist of his generation. Maybe it was Lewis who was portrayed in the film. They asked him, why didn't Robert Oppenheimer ever get a Nobel Prize? Why does he have so many fewer contributions to physics physics than you would expect from someone who led the you know basically brought it to america and led berkeley for years and years and he said well he was a person who couldn't focus and i think that's you know he was a person who liked to flirt with different ideas different ideologies different women and never really uh you know he he struggled to settle and focus on one so that he could really do great things but i think as the movie progresses we see him start to overcome this and he starts to have like that come to Jesus moment where he finds something important to work on, someone important to be married to. And he doesn't a hundred percent succeed at those things, but right. I think he gets better and better And you know, when we see him with Jean, he's bringing her flowers every time 
and she's throwing them away. You know, he's not learning very quickly. Um, Yeah. Can I ask you, you said something at the very beginning of this about talking about the character of Oppenheimer, the question that you had raised. Um, You brought it up again. What was that question again? I I think what what I want people to ask themselves and at least like wrestle with is don't be so quick to let Oppenheimer off the hook. <laughs> Does Oppenheimer, you know, he at the towards the in the last act of the film, people are saying are kind of saying, why are you letting them judge you? Why are you letting them tar and feather you? His wife says, um, don't let don't just you should be convinced to feel sad for Robert Oppenheimer. You know, there's that scene where Oppenheimer after Gene commits suicide and Oppenheimer rides his horse out into the woods and is crying and his wife comes and she she kneels down beside him and she tells him that, um, you know, you don't get to commit the sin and then have us feel sorry for you. And I think that you need to, before you start loving Robert Oppenheimer too much, and I do like him and I think he's a hero who overcomes that. But before you come down on that side, I think you really need to examine uh, everything, his life as a whole in this movie is an excellent, excellent take on that. And I love that we got a little bit of complexity in there. Well, and you watch him try to dip his toe back into political waters later 